Dilemma. Yeah. Episode 12. Here we are. Coleman Hughes. Hey. Yes. <laughs> How's it going? Good. You have your solo podcast now. I do. We're recording this before it comes out. I haven't heard it. Yes. I'm sure it's brilliant. Well, actually, while we're recording this now, I haven't heard it. But when this episode comes out, I will have listened to it. Okay. So you can re- maybe revise your opinion on it in the... Yeah. It's the, terrible. Uh, it's a hindsight. <laughs> in hindsight. It's horrible. You guys will find... It's called Conversations with Coleman. Mm-hmm. And it'll be on all of the normal podcasting uh interfaces and youtube as well yeah so the world can't get enough of coleman hughes we'll see that (laughs) may not turn out to be true we're gonna find the limit we're gonna just saturate coleman everywhere until until people complain okay this this episode we have uh one of uh i'll just i'll I'll say this is a steven pinker episode because steven pinker is a big name for good reason he's been the more people that i meet out in the world in the intellectual space that you can like trace back to like they went through the Steven Pinker kind of uh, branch on the tree of life is pretty phenomenal. People like Don Hoffman working in consciousness, people like Gary Marcus working in AI. Like I just meet people all the time and it's like, oh, they they studied with Pinker. He's he's uh, I know he's controversial in some circles, but we should not underestimate him as just like this pillar of the time we live in as as thought. That's all I got to say about Stephen Pinker. No, yeah, <laughs> I've been a huge fan for yeah. a long time. I love the blank slate. I love Better Angels of Our Nature, Enlightenment yeah. Now, and his books on language are good too. Yeah, not really my department, but yeah, he's a really great writer. His his book on writing. Any anytime someone asks me for advice on on writing, I just say read The Sense of Style by mm-hmm. Stephen Pinker. Yeah, and read it again. It's really a great how to. I met nonfiction I, argumentative writer. I met like a barista who claimed that reading the blank slate is what, uh, well, she's a barista now, so I don't know how it worked out, but to, to make her, uh, change her career path. And she's trying to be an artist now and was reading the blank slate and it's, um, there is a part yeah. of art. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, anyway, Steven Pinker, <laughs> but what we're going to talk about with Steven Pinker, this is kind of fun, I think, because Pinker, as you mentioned, he wrote better angels of our nature and enlightenment now, which, were very similar books kind of um, uh, pointing to the tremendous successes that we're having globally at reducing things like child mortality and increasing uh, wealth and all these kind of things for uh, oddly he gets slammed for pointing out good news Um, maybe some people uh, have interesting fears about that that conversation about Steven Pinker you can find it's out there there's a lot out there this one is different because on this show as you know we talk about sort of moral philosophy and specifically we're talking about uh, what is referred to as physician assisted suicide and I don't even have like a specific dilemma here you could just think of any generic case of Oregon and someone sick who's been diagnosed with a, a terminal illness and and wishes to um, uh, have their death at their sort of uh, under their control when they want it precisely how they want it um, so that's what we're talking about today so I don't know what your thoughts generally on that subject are mm-hmm. but uh, I'm coming in with a strong prior opinion that phys- physician assisted suicide should be legal everywhere yeah um, sorry I'm very sick so I'm gonna be we're gonna sounding like a, yeah we're gonna offer you at a physician assisted suicide yeah, whenever you're ready honestly, to I get out of this right misery now. yeah I could use that right about now <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, I think most of the objections have to do with the quote-unquote sanctity of life, which, as we've discussed before, I don't see sanctity as a useful concept mm. mor- morally. I think it 
almost always confuses in, in a in a universe where by definition we're, we're always dealing with trade-offs getting more of one value is in many cases getting less of another yeah the moment you define something as as, as sacred you stop doing the hard work of, of, of the trade-off uh, and I think this is probably probably the best example I can think of of, of why the idea of sanctity can lead to uh, actually cruel outcomes hmm. rather than uh, benign one yeah so all three of us including Stephen I think all share a pretty strong prior here that this should be legal it's hard to find a moral case against it but of course you you push on it enough and you can find maybe areas where you're at least hesitant I'll forecast a couple of things that we were going to get into uh, on this episode one of them I think we're going to talk about free will it's something that this is episode what is this 12 I said and we haven't really just laid out the sort of determinism versus free will, libertarian free will argument. I, I have a feeling it's going to come up. Have we, we haven't just, we just sort of take it for granted that the audience like has heard it a little bit, huh. but I think we should just, we're probably going to have to do it at some point because of a, a kind of argument that Stephen brings up. Another thing we're going to talk about beyond the free will thing is slippery slopes, which is something that really like gets under my skin a lot because people bring up a slippery slope kind of argument to prove a point a lot and forget that the slippery slope is actually a fallacy mm-hmm. and people forget that this is usually a bad argument. So we, we talk about slippery slopes and how to know if the slope you're actually on is slippery or not. Right. Uh, because Every, everything's on a slope. Everything can be made to seem on a slope. Yeah. Some of those slopes are in fact slippery. Some are not. Yeah. Yeah. And how would you go about answering that? Yeah. So Stephen, Pink, I'm probably forecasting a little bit of that um, argumentation, but as, as a strong lover of data that he is, an empiricist, you could probably understand how you might actually decide whether you're on a slippery slope. But of course, one of the classic challenges to physician-assisted suicide would be a slippery slope challenge that like, if you do this, suddenly everybody's, you know, you'll, you'll get a headache and you'll want physician-assisted suicide or something, and we'll just be killing people willy-nilly. Um, that would be a slippery slope argument. Um, but some slippery, some slopes actually are slippery. I started to get a hashtag of a round of hashtag not all slopes. Imagine saying that with a lisp. What? Uh, Some slopes are slippery. This is like the this is the philosophy nerd version of the Susie sells seashells by the yeah, seashore. Yeah. But it's some slopes are slippery slopes. Not <laughs> I don't even know what I said. Uh, yes, I was trying to get the hashtag going of hashtag not all slopes. Maybe we can get that going. <laughs> but every time you see a slippery slope, just all slopes matter. <laughs> oh, dangerous. <laughs> all right, let's jump into Steven Pinker on that note. <laughs> all slopes so this one, um, there's there's no like specific dilemma really written. It's mm-hmm. pretty much we're going to talk about physician-assisted suicide yeah. and try to find the borders of it. I've been reading a little bit about your what you have publicly sort of about bioethics, which mm-hmm. are some interesting things. But on the physician-assisted suicide question, where do you start to sort of, um, you know, stab at the moral framework of it? Yes, I would uh, begin... Uh, with the uh, application of the principle of autonomy, that uh, all things being equal, uh, people should have the freedom to make decisions that uh, affect themselves. And therefore, I would uh, be in favor of the legalization of what is sometimes called physician-assisted suicide, but I have heard that a a better term is medical assistance in dying, because it actually does not come up in people who are 
literally suicidal in, in the sense that they are depressed, they are hopeless, they no longer want to live. These are people who are going to die anyway, right. and they just want control over the circumstances in which they die, namely at a time of their choosing and uh, with a least amount of uh, pain and um, and um, uh, cognitive confusion. Yeah. So I would, uh, applying the principle that uh, decisions have to be made by someone and that uh, when a decision, uh, by default, the decision ought to be made by whoever is most affected by that decision. And the ultimate example of that is uh, how to continue one's own existence, mm -hmm. uh, that in general, uh, the agent has the most information uh, relevant to uh, to the decision. And of course, it is the uh, agent who is most affected by the decision. As, as we say, he's got skin in the game, yeah. or she. Yeah. So, so with a push on the autonomy, though, because you're, you're, so you're immediately drawing a line, or you're saying most times it just doesn't come up for suicidal people, but this is, this is dying people, uh, people who are dying anyway. But in some ways, I mean, I think that's where I want to push on to try to find w where that breaks down for you. Mm -hmm. um, a, a more complicated case than someone who just maybe has a terminal illness or, or you know, is, is on their way out and wants to do it on their own terms. Um, I was reading about a case of someone who was petitioning to have whatever you call it, an induced uh, assisted dying or, or whatever the, the term would be, and they were an alcoholic. And they'd just been struggling with it for like 20 years and were just fed up. They've like, I've tried everything. Every day is a living hell. I can't stop this. This is miserable. Please, I just wanted to end. That, it, does, does, wouldn't that also fall under your, well, they have autonomy over that. And so does that line push it for you at all? Well, this is, in, in practice, the legal controversies tend not to, don't extend to that case because yeah. as far as I know, there is no country that uh, allows a, physician to assist in the case of a, a um, physically um, healthy, non-terminal person who chooses to end their own existence. Mm -hmm. And of course, in that, in that case, the involvement of a physician tends to be moot because uh, a person who's determined to take their own life, unlike, say, a, a cancer patient, mm -hmm. has the resources to, to, to do so. And so physician assistance uh, or medical assistance uh, tends not to come up. In in the case of, um, you now alcoholism may itself be uh, a special case because mm. we legitimately curtail autonomy in cases where the we have reason to believe that the decision-making process itself is impaired. Mm. So we don't give children autonomy to make major decisions because they are, uh, uh, we deem that, uh, and, and for good reason, that below a certain age, children's uh, mental faculties are not mature enough to uh, make a, a reasoned decision. If someone is uh, in the throes of a serious psychiatric condition, if they're schizophrenic, if they're delusional, if they're hallucinating, uh, if they are literally drunk at the time, hmm. uh, so they're, they're, uh, if, if they are uh, in the throes of unusual circumstances that we have reason to believe addle their decision-making abilities. So these are principled exceptions to the principle of autonomy precisely because the exercise of autonomy uh, is itself compromised. Yeah. Now, so what about, say, an alcoholic while he is sober? There, I think the arguments can get more complicated because people recover from alcoholism, so it is not a irrevocable condition, so there really is suicide as opposed to assistance in dying. Mm. Because even and, uh, if someone is alcoholic, then one has reason to believe that their decision-making may be impaired even during uh, intervals of uh, sobriety. Likewise, in uh, when 
medical assistance in dying is legal, as it is in, in uh, Oregon, generally may be applied only when the person is deemed not to be in the uh, depths of some depression that we have reason to believe uh, could impair their decision-making uh, ability. Mm. So those are all, I think, principal safeguards against Now, what about someone who just for decides being of sound mind? They're um, it may not even turn up as a real issue because they can always take an overdose and don't need a doctor to help them. And there is the moral issue of how strongly we ought to prevent them. And I think the argu argument is pretty strongly because mm -hmm. uh, um, the kind of hopelessness and depression that leads someone to uh, a health, otherwise healthy person to suicide itself is not a permanent condition. And if they are based basing their decision on the expectation that nothing will ever get better, they are factually mistaken, that it, it is possible that they can get better, unlike the case of the, the, the terminal patient. And uh, therefore, there might be a moral obligation to try to talk them out of it um, yeah. uh, in order to, to um, preserve their ability to, uh, to, to enjoy life yeah. uh, when they're out of that state. This one's generally hard for me. Most of the dilemmas mm. that we do, it's very easy for me to sort of conjure an argument on both sides. And this one is particularly hard for me to find an argument against it. And I feel like I'm well, just so, not being creative again. Okay, Can well, you let me, do it? Give, uh, give me the so best. Let me, yeah. you know, in, the, in the great Talmudic yeah. tradition of uh, <laughs> arguing, uh, the, uh, in the, or arguing the alternative, I yeah. guess, as the lawyers say, or at least uh, switching sides. So one could, uh, one could say that they're um, Countering the principle of autonomy, there has to be a principle of um, never deliberately taking a life, mm. that life is sacrosanct, that this is a red line that we should not cross because if we uh, allow it to be crossed in certain circumstances, there could be a slippery slope towards euthanasia of inconvenient people, of uh, <laughs> people who are retarded, people who are we, we deem uh, undesirable. I, I think of it a historical example that just reminds me of uh, why um, it's almost second nature to us that we have a, a taboo against the act of taking of human life. This is a real incident in the uh, American West during the, uh, uh, the, the era of the frontier where a, a family making their way to uh, a homestead uh, came across a Native American girl who had been abandoned. They didn't know why, because she didn't speak English. She was uh, sickly, covered with sores, uh, you know, pathetic, alone, and they deliberated in agony as to what they ought to do. Um, some of the women in the group said we ought to take, a, take her uh, with us, but they themselves were uh, kind of at the edge of survival. Some of the others say, no, we, we just can't have one more, more mouth to feed. Um, they decided to, to leave her, and then one uh, man in the party, out of uh, uh, mercy, went back and shot her. Hmm. Now, this is just uh, horrifying. Uh, it is just, uh, it sends a chill through your spine. Although, of course, we would justify that if it was the case of an injured animal. Yes, uh, yeah. But our ethical sensibilities are, that is a line you just may not cross. Mm -hmm. uh, even if there is some utilitarian calculus that says that she would be better off, there's no way in which her happiness could be uh, increased, that there was that just wasn't in the uh, set of alternatives. So mm -hmm. by some kind of utilitarian calculus, one perhaps could have argued at the time she's better off. If there's like uh, a wolf coming out of the shadows who's about to get her, like this is the better way to go anyway. Right, yeah. or if it was to, or if it was to, to die of exposure yeah. and starvation. Yeah, yeah. 
still, we, we uh, currently and rightly say that, um, no, the, you, that's where the utilitarian calculation stops. We just have to um, respect an all-or-none taboo against the deliberate taking of a human life. Uh, otherwise, you get uh, you, you get Nazism. You get the, the final solution. Now, there. So, I think that that's a potential argument. There's also more familiar arguments that um, openings for uh, uh, abuse, such as a um, you know daughter-in-law who wants to hasten the day when she'll inherit the father-in-law's fortune, or or get rid of a shrewish mother-in-law. Uh, that there may be mistakes in diagnosis, that perhaps what you think is a terminal disease isn't, that the desire of someone to end their life uh, may be a temporary condition, as in the earlier case we mentioned <laughs> of, a, uh, of, of a real suicide who's not uh, suffering from a terminal illness. Uh, so that's a, a, a second category of objections to legalizing medical assistance in dying. Yeah. So now the question is, what are the... Now that now that I've stated them, yeah. now yeah. switch sides again. <laughs> yeah. uh, so in the case of the uh, possibility that the, the doctors are wrong, that they'll, they'll they'll recover, I think that all of our decisions have to be made under uh, the realization that there is no hundred percent certainty. Uh, just as when uh, it, it's not unethical to perform surgery on a patient, knowing that the chance uh, that they'll die on the operating table is um, uh, greater than zero, uh, the fact that there is a infinitesimal chance that a, uh, a patient diagnosed as having a terminal disease will recover uh, should not be a reason not to do it ethic. Otherwise, we can ethically justify. Mm. The case of a, of, a, of, a, of a slippery slope, there I think a lot of slippery slope arguments have to be treated empirically. That is, is the slope that slippery right. in cases where it's been tried? Are there cases when there are jurisdictions that try, uh, that were the early adopters of medical assistance in dying, did it lead to a slippery slope in which you know everyone with Down syndrome gets euthanized mm. or other uh, horrors, or cases in which the impatient uh, uh, daughter-in-law um, bumps off granny, um, and uh, and can the law be wordsmithed in a way that prevents that from happening? Mm. And I think the experience, at least that I'm aware of, that. Uh, is that that uh, we don't? There doesn't seem to be a slippery slope. I have a confession to make. Um, <laughs> just haunts, when you tell the Native American story and like the mercy killing, which is awful. I um, I once, you know, those mouse traps that are like sticky pads, where instead of snapping and killing the mouse immediately, it like it's like the sticky goo yes. and they can't escape it. Yes. They seem fucking terrible to me. I remember walking outside. This was in the East Village years ago, so it still haunts me. And somebody had like put one of those out with the mouse still on it, like struggling to get off of it. But it was fucking hopeless. Like that yeah. mouse was like had basically torn its own legs off, pretty much trying to get out. And um, and I and I faced the dilemma of like I need to perform a mercy killing right now. But I didn't have the heart to like step on it. Like there was no escaping this thing. This mouse was going to die or be like be killed by a pigeon or something. Um, I flipped it over into a puddle. Like that's all I could do. That's all I could think of doing. You think that drowned it quickly? Yeah. I, well, yes. In my mind, it was this peaceful, transcendent yeah. death, but fucking terrible. And then it's, I don't know. Those kind of traps just seem awful to me. They say drowning is kind of like falling asleep, right? 
I've never <laughs> make me that. feel better about this. Yes, <laughs> that's that mouse is just sleeping somewhere now in heaven. Yeah. Mouse With heaven. The shrine to Jay Shapiro. The, the yeah, the mercy killer. Mercy killed me. Ugh. Anyway, but it's terrible. But it brings up an interesting. I mean, him using that analogy. Anyway, again, like I really respect and appreciate the, as he said, the Talmudic tradition of like making the best argument against yourself there. Mm. Um, but I still find them unconvincing. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he sort of echoed your thing of sort of what he, a, a sacred value of life or something. Mm-hmm. But then that's why he brought up that example of a mercy killing of like, right. well, that doesn't help you there. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I, I find myself agreeing with him so much. It's tough to find something interesting to say. And his counter arguments were really well rendered. He yeah. has a remarkable ability to make the other side's case as good or better than that side would itself. Yeah. I, I did think, of, well, one thing I do want to point out is that alcoholic case mm-hmm. is real. It happened in Holland. Uh, I have some quotes from it. Uh, maybe I can link to it because um, it, it is really interesting. They just struggled with alcoholism and wanted to kill himself. Well, you know, I was reading it a little bit. A yeah, I was reading it more carefully here. And I guess the particular case that they were making in petitioning is that he struggled from depression and anxiety and alcoholism is how he's trying to treat it. I mean, it gets pretty fuzzy here, uh-huh. sort of legally, um, but the, he was making this case that this is a cure, that, or, or that this is an illness that he has, mm-hmm. and he's trying everything he can to cure it, and he's tired of living in this misery, and he petitioned the courts over and over so again, what's the illness, and he got it. More depression and anxiety. Yeah, I think it, I I don't know this particular. It was a, a case in Holland. From the quotes I'm getting here, I think they were making the case that it was well. Okay, here's a quote from his brother. My brother suffered from depression and anxiety and tried to cure it with alcohol. He's from a normal family. He did not want this to happen. He did not take an easy way out, just a humane one. It so, goes on. So he did kill himself. Uh, he he got an injection. I mean, it was it was oh, approved. Oh, it was yeah, approved. it was approved. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Um, I don't know if particularly a physician, as as Stephen said, like it, it's like a different kind of situation there. But it was approved. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's an interesting case. Yeah, I, I do think there is a there. Yeah, you know, I've had this conversation with some people before. Most people who are suicidal there is some plausible way for them to become non-suicidal. So Mm -hmm. it makes sense to have an ironclad rule. If any of your friends are suicidal, try to persuade them, try to get them help. Don't, don't corroborate their belief that their entire life is going to be as bad as it feels right now, or as bad as it's felt for the past few months, because in most cases, that's not the case. Like they, they will find some, They'll, they'll find some sort of equilibrium mentally that allows them to be happy enough that life yeah. continuing to live makes sense. However, there there must be some subset of suicidal people for whom it's actually true that their life is below the standard that at, at which it makes sense to continue to live and is going to remain there mm-hmm. in perpetuity. Right. Like, I, I don't think it's it's not like a law of the universe that every suicidal person sort of makes it to an equilibrium that makes sense. Yeah. So in those cases, I think it's, it's possible to say two things at once. A, that you should just have an ironclad rule to always uh, try to persuade people not to commit suicide. But B, that, you know, there there are some suicides that have happened that should have happened. Yeah. Because... That this person actually life was 
more bad than good and had they continued living there actually wasn't a yeah. way for them to or a plausible way for them to to make it and they livable. and this guy if, if we believe him and you know there's a lot of safeguards here I, I will also point out the last line in the the last quote in that article was it's not like we go around killing people in holland it took my brother a year and a half and many struggles to get it done so it's like acknowledging that we see the danger of just like stamping approve anytime anyone says like I'm depressed and I'm drinking alcohol and I'm sad like mm-hmm. that's not what happened here so like we have to as Stephen said look at empirical evidence of to to see if a slope is really slippery yeah. and look at places where it's been done we have we have some live experiments happening in Oregon is one they have their own version of it and Holland is another probably the most sort of um, loose version of it are we seeing slides towards Nazi Germany like he sort of says there that the bottom of the slippery slope is? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I don't think so. And what are the safeguards that are, could it get there? Like, you know, these things take a lot of diligent work in these kind of hard cases. But um, there is an ethical question there of like, you know, running the experiment live. The only way to tell if a slope, if the best way to tell if a slope is slippery is like running an experiment with real people. Mm-hmm. Um you know, running experiments with humans is always <laughs> an ethical, an ethical line. You know, we, right. we could do it with any conversation about UBI or anything. And the fears are like, well, let's see how it works out. And, but that's kind of the best you could do is run little pilot programs. Maybe he just meant look at areas in that, that have already made the law and see what happens. Yeah. Like natural experiments. Yeah. And Canada as well. You know? Yeah. Natural. It's not like we're yeah. running no. it there. Yeah. Um, Let's let's do this quickly because I'll, I'll jump back into Stephen. But I was mentioning before that we haven't done the free will thing. Mm-hmm. Let's because of an argument that he's about to make. Um, I want to just give our quick sort of pitch for what because he doesn't do it and I don't do it with him. What is what is what's you've done this before? Mm-hmm. What is the case against free will? If no, if the listeners have heard this, you could skip like fifteen seconds ahead and do that kind of <laughs> thing until you find it. But um, it's probably worth just like going over again. Why is what is called libertarian free will? Uh-huh an incoherent description of the universe we find ourselves in. Well, I, I, I guess the, the key thing is to recognize that human beings are a part of the universe that is subject to the laws of physics, whatever those laws turn out to be in their entirety. We are in the universe in the same way that, you know, all of the experiments you saw in your eighth grade physics class, you know, rolling a bowling, bowling ball down a frictionless lane and the perfect predictability that that paradigm enables all of the laws that ensure that predictability are operating on every cell in your body including your brain which is what produces your behavior so the sense that you could have done something otherwise the sense that the past could have gone differently as a result of your own agency is an illusion uh, and on the other hand, from the first person point of view, it generally doesn't feel like an illusion. It right. feels like I'm choosing the words that I'm, you know, that, that I'm going to end this sentence with. Um, but we know that that can't be true. Like unless, unless you're, you're, you have some reason to believe that you're uh, a, a prime mover, an uncaused cause. Mm-hmm which you know, we have no reason to believe, then the, the, the idea of libertarian free will doesn't make sense, which should be distinguished from the fact that 
humans make choices. Right. Those are two different, importantly different concepts. It's possible to make choices. Uh, like we even speak of chimpanzees in the lab making choices when we present them with two alternatives. He chose the grape over the the piece of lettuce. Uh, but I think most people don't imagine that chimpanzees have the kind of free will that they have. Mm-hmm. So just want to I just want to close the door to that straw man which is of course you have free will because you make choices Th- those are two different things degrees of freedom in different choices is or different decisions that, that that the brain makes is i think kind of the way compatibilists tend to mm. framework use that framework so yeah like for a concrete example i have coffee which i bought i don't know 30 minutes ago now or so downstairs uh, I feel like, oh, I could have chosen tea, but really to say that is like rewind the universe to the moment I chose the coffee and the infinitely complex constellation of nature and nurture that went into forming that moment of the universe, which included my brain in it, chose coffee. And to say I could have chosen tea would have just, it would be the same sentence as saying the universe would have been a different universe if I could rewind it, which is just an, an an incoherent statement Mm -hmm. so it's uh, you there's nowhere to pause the universe where you ever can slide yourself in Mm -hmm. and choose the prior state to it Mm -hmm. and so you just this notion of libertarian free will which i guess is also sort of called religious free will um just is is incoherent really um and even if somebody i mean the most common challenge i get is like soul stuff it's like well what about the soul and even if there is some sort of metaphysical soul that somehow doesn't isn't affected by all those laws of physics that you you mentioned well congratulations you didn't choose your soul either so the soul that i had that i that chose the coffee if that's what was doing the choosing uh, i didn't choose that either and it's just an infinite regress into a black hole and this whole conversation falls apart yeah to free will sorry it's gone (laughs) we could talk about (laughs) the responsibility that comes with it because this doesn't some people make the mistake of like oh well then i could just do anything and murder anyone and then there's no no responsibility this entire show is 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 trying to reject that and really parse what responsibility means what moral responsibility means but in some way you are off the hook cosmically mm-hmm. for everything but it yeah. doesn't mean that i'm not gonna throw you in jail if you you know right rob the bank right because because i don't have a cure for you robbing the bank yet really is, right. is the thing there's a lot of good punchlines that get to the free will thing but i'll get back into steven we could probably pick that one back up because he says a line in the next bit that i think is going to um bounce off of that free will conversation that we just laid out in a way that's um meaningful about uh, if i'm get if i'm getting pre if i'm forecasting the line correctly he said you can't be wrong someone can't be wrong about what they want but they can be wrong about what they believe mm-hmm. anyway you'll hear it here it comes and, and one of the safeguards that's pretty common in place is that the patient has to like administer it themselves or push the plunger down if it's an injection or actually swallow the pills mm-hmm. on the day of which is controversial. So it was reading of some cases where I, I think this is a real case, maybe in the Netherlands where a doctor or a physician is being, is actually being charged with potential murder because the day of this person was like fighting it and wanted to resist it, but they had signed and they had agreed to a sort of a pre-commitment, uh, you know, a directive earlier, affirmative di- uh, directive that 
at, if I reach this point, I want you to end my life. Mm-hmm. So on the day of, they were actually like resisting it. And so the guy said, I've changed my mind. I want to live. And I, the, I, the doctor said, too late. Yeah, I think they uh, were like maybe to, out of their mind. And like the family had to actually like help assist and being like, uh-huh. they told us she doesn't want to live this way or something. And, and those cases become re- really, I mean, that safeguard would be in yeah. place there. If, if they don't push the plunger, then yes. they can't it's, do it. You know, it seems to me, well, that, that would be, I, I was not aware of that case. Yeah. I, if it occurred that a, someone kicking and screaming, saying, I want to live, it I want to live, awful, and then right? someone's, and someone's uh, injecting them with, with <laughs> yeah, cyanide. Terrible, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, yeah. that does kind of sound like murder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yes, I, I would say, you know, not, not being a lawyer and not knowing exactly how to <laughs> stipulate the, the, the various uh, safeguards, I would say that, yeah, if the person expresses a wish not to be, not to, to live, they should not be, they should not be killed. At, at, at any point during that. So, so I mean, I mean unless, is that safeguard yeah. the best, I mean, I don't know if that's the best solution, but that's... Yeah, it seems to. Yeah, yeah. so I wasn't aware of that case. It seemed to me that if someone expresses a uh, a wish not to die, they should not be they should not be killed. Yeah, there's this sentence that comes up a lot in these conversations, which I find just philosophically sort of tickling. Of if I lose my mind, kill me. Oh yes, right. Which is sort of a whole shoot shoot me now is the uh, the 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 jocular uh, way of putting it. I mean, it's it's sort of the obvious philosophical like puzzle. There is well, if I if I lose my mind. I'm I'm no longer there. Yeah, if, there is no anymore. Me. So there I, is no I, me I must have died at some point when I've lost it. So who would you be killing if I've lost my mind already? But that seems to be the most. I mean, in reading about sort of the people who do this, it's not fear of pain. It's as you mentioned, it's always fear of losing autonomy. It's like yeah. ALS patients and this kind of stuff is the most common. I, I mean, but, my yeah. understanding is that the case in which uh, I, I think there'd be if someone expresses a wish not to die, mm-hmm. that the presumption should be that that's a rational wish. That is, whereas there are there are, there are various kinds of delusion, um, the desires generally you can't be wrong in what you want. Hmm. Uh, you can be wrong in what you believe, hmm. uh, and uh, above all, the desire to continue to exist should not be second guessed. There's an interesting with the want and the believe. Is there is there is there something to poke at there of what if somebody believe something incorrect yeah so, so if they say i'm yeah. going to get i uh, don't don't kill me because i'm i'm going to be cured tomorrow right. i know it i've i've uh, taken enough uh, uh bee pollen and i've <laughs> have a, an exorcism by my priest yeah and uh and they sacrificed a goat yeah and so i'm going to be better tomorrow yeah um yeah so uh, it's, it's, it seems to be the presumption there should be that that if a person expresses a, a desire to live that they can't cannot be there's nothing for them to be mistaken about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they could be mistaken about their prospects, but just as we're not going to, no part of this medical assistance in dying would include involuntarily hastening the death of a terminal patient. Mm. That is, if they, if, if someone says, I, "I have a week to live and I'd like to enjoy that week," thank you. Then, uh, just as anyone has the right not to be murdered, such a person would have a right not to be murdered. Does it work if you flip it? So you did sort of the someone believing that they're going to get better, and that's and that's why you're not going to administer it. Does it work if you flip it of someone saying, you know, like, oh, I'm sure that I'm dying. I'm sure that I have this terrible thing, and you as the doctor, like, you know, I, I could just cure you if I just if you give me ten minutes. But they're like, no, 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 I'm sure of it, so I want to end this now. I mean, when you flip it, it yeah. do we still have to take that desire as as rational? You're saying it's rational if they say I want to live, even if their belief is flawed about their illness. Can I flip that and those two things are still true? Yeah, so if someone says I'm, um, so you have a, you have a, a hypochondriac yes. who says this, uh, 
that this hangnail is going to kill me. Yeah. And I'm convinced <laughs> I'm not going to live to see the next month. Yeah. So I want to end it now rather than go through the agony of dying Have of this. Have you had so. a hangnail? You're pretty <laughs> yeah. bad. Yeah. Yeah, right. I mean, yes. I've and been doc- that person. <laughs> and, the, and the doctor says, no, no, trust me, the hangnail, it's, you're, you're going to get better. Then, uh, yeah, I think there's a, there'd be a responsibility not to assist right. in that kind of uh, suicide. So that now. seems like an interesting place to push. I mean, that feels like I'm trying to, again, make the best case against my own intuition yes, right. to always support it. That feels like there's an opening there. Is that a flaw in the reasoning or in the argument that someone would would point at being like, oh, no, Stephen's just he's he's so is there an asymmetry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I think I think uh, there probably is a principled asymmetry Mm. Uh, for one thing that since the uh, you know, there is a a legitimate um, taboo or deontological prescription against actively taking a life. There may be extraordinary circumstances in which that can be overridden, mm-hmm. say when the principle of autonomy conflicts with it. Yeah. Um, the uh, but but otherwise, in, in general, you shouldn't. Uh, I think it's probably a pretty good safeguard. Don't take active steps yeah. to, uh, to to end a life. Um, and uh, uh, you know, again, with that it raises a whole other set of issues that we haven't talked about that are kind of chestnuts in moral philosophy of mm-hmm. whether there's a morally significant distinction between uh, omission and commission, mm. uh, between um, causing something by an action or causing it by failure to prevent it. Yes. Uh, our most intuitions are that there is a significant difference and, and, and the laws recognize, in most cases recognize a difference, but there, that is a whole opening for yet another debate. One question I do think it raises is the question of continuity of personal identity over time. Mm. So if you're, quote unquote, in your right mind for many months and then you have brain cancer and it changes your personality very quickly and suddenly your desires also change. Um, And let's say your former self gave instructions to your family to kill me if I ever get into such and such a state mentally. Now you have to question whether you're confronted with the same person or a different person. Yeah. And I think if I were to take a sort of Derek Parfit-like approach to personal identity over time being just a matter of continuity of psychology let's say this let's say for some reason you lose your memories um, and your personality changes in what sense you know I might still call you Jay we might still use the same word to refer to you because that's just a convention but you could argue that in, in, in every other relevant sense you're dealing with a different person so that J sub one's directions about how to treat J sub two are as irrelevant as my yeah. directions about how to treat you. Yeah. So if this new person says, fuck it, I want to live, I don't care what you think I said several months ago. Yeah. And how do you negotiate that? Yeah. I, th- yeah. That was the sort of like the, if I lose my mind, kill me thing, mm-hmm. which is, yeah, it it feels like it makes sense until you actually start thinking about it carefully. Right. Who if are you killing? Then? Yeah. Who are you killing if it's if that person has already lost their mind? Yeah. Yeah. You're killing, you're killing a brand a, new person, a new mind who might want to live. Right. Yeah. I don't know how. Yeah. I don't know how to answer that one because it's again. Would you? If I told you that being like, if I got diagnosed with some Alzheimer's or some terrible like degenerative disease, and was was 
fearing losing my mind, whatever that means. And I told you, like, I am sure that I want you to kill me the moment that, like, I don't recognize you. Because, mm-hmm. like, you're my best friend mm-hmm. and I've known you my whole life. Mm-hmm. And if you walk in the door when I'm in the hospital and I'm afraid of you and I don't know who you are and I'm having delusions, like, just kill me then. That that sounds like it makes sense now. Mm-hmm. Also terribly sad, of course. But then also is, like, kind of illogical of, like, well imagine that day where you walk in and I'm terrified and I'm like, I don't know who you are. Please like someone call the cops mm-hmm. and you're, and you're like, you've known me my whole life. I'm your best friend. And, and, and I'm like, no, like, please like get out of here. Mm-hmm. And then you said like, and you told me to kill you <laughs> when this day came, this scene is just like, yeah. this is a horror movie now. Yeah. Um, and that's like a murder where I'm fighting against you, which I brought up. I did bring up a case where this, something like this happened apparently. Mm. Um, which may be a bit of a, a slippery slope sort of worry of like, oh, okay, that, that actually, as Steven says, like, oh, now that feels like a murder. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, subjectively, yeah. from the point of view of the murdered, it just is a murder. Yes. Like that All that yeah. is is a stranger murdering you. A stranger you. murdering you. Yeah. yeah. Which is just terrible. Yeah. But then the catch-22 of it and the impossibility of it is like, it's... <laughs> if it's a if it's a on off switch of the moment where i recognize you versus i don't it's going to be a murder either way (laughs) like if you're sure tomorrow's the day i'm going to lose my mind and forget who you are and think you're a stranger then you have to kill me today but i this doesn't meet the conditions where i said you should kill me yet so it's actually just you're you're going to murder me no matter what (laughs) you're going to murder someone no matter what yeah so and you're either murdering your friend or a stranger yeah so the, the i thought of another sci-fi scenario where someone is a split brain patient mm. one of their halves you know the, the half that controls language says don't kill me yeah the half that controls whichever arm writes on a piece of paper please kill me i don't wish to live and they're just at odds with each other just like split brain patient patients have been caught trying to close and open doors at the same time or <laughs> yeah. buttoning their shirt up and down simultaneously. And then who do you listen to? Yeah. Uh, that seems like, it seems like you should obviously err on the side of not yeah. killing the person, but that's an interesting sci-fi. Scene, yeah. yeah. Also total. I, I should also, I should also mention that the fact that we have to like go so far off the rails in sci-fi world to like come up with scenarios where this is a challenge. We should also just like pin a pin, put a pin in the fact that 99% of the people who want this are not at all facing that. And they're actually just like terminally ill people who don't want the pain and and losing autonomy and like soiling their beds. And so like for most people, we're trying very hard to find the hard cases where we can find the edges of this. I should just put a pin in that. None of this like changes my mind, but it's interesting to find the principles where it breaks down, I guess. Same. Yeah. Same. So let's jump back into Steven. So I do try now just because i have steven pinker in front of me here um in this interview to get sort of his general moral framework in in life just to to get into his mind so it's kind of fun just to hear him like build an entire i don't know moral structure from from scratch so let me try to get your if we step away from this particular example a bit but i'm sure we'll relate to it your general do you have sort of a general approach to philosophy, you invoked deontological arguments, which we could talk about and, and maybe pointing to one about not intentionally taking a human life in this case. Do you generally in your work have a moral framework that yeah, guides I'm, I'm you? Yeah, I'm certainly more consequentialist, right. while um, 
opening up a space for deontological principles, maybe paradoxically, for their consequences. Mm -hmm. Namely, in some ways, the uh, best means of maximizing flourishing and minimizing suffering is to draw uh, red lines in the form of deontological rules, but that those rules can always be interrogated for their long-term consequences. I think a lot of deontological rules actually are consequentialist in the long run uh, and anticipating all the opportunities for gaining the system by um, jiggering consequentialist calculations. Uh, if we want a way of ensuring the greatest benefit in, in the long run, often taking human decision-making out of the, with all of its potential for error, errors and biases out of the equation uh, by imposing uh, red lines might be the most uh, efficacious, efficacious way of, uh, of uh, maximizing human well-being. That you probably really are better off with uh, rules that prohibit murder than say, well, uh, you can imagine a more general uh, guideline like you know, maximize flourishing, minimize suffering. And you know, in general, that would prevent you from killing yeah. because most people want to live. Uh, but there'd be enough loopholes and gray areas that you don't want people exploring uh, that, that we are all better off in the long run with that clear uh, proscription. Yeah, and a teacher once said deontological rules are made to be broken. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, yes. That's sort of the point. Like, uh, and there are a lot of also there's um, the problem with, with a lot of consequentialist rules is that they are, are too easily gameable. So, for example, the, one of the reasons that we have laws, uh, you know, against murder and theft and so on, is that if it was just implement the policy that would maximize societal well-being, then there are probably thefts and robberies that uh, it would cost more to prosecute than the financial value of the loss. Mm. So you might say, well, why hire all these police and you know, courts and judges and prison to, to, uh, to punish car theft for the amount we're paying those lawyers? We can just buy the guy a new car. <laughs> uh, now, the reason we don't do that is that if we did do that, then uh, you know, malefactors would figure out exactly how much wrong they could get away with that it would not w be worth society to try to prevent right. and commit that amount of harm, which would probably be more harm than if the society simply implemented a rule, uh, you steal, you're liable to prosecution. Right. This might feel like a, a silly question, but this is a philosophy podcast, but <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm trying to find like the grounding of, of your morality somewhere and throughout talking about the physician-assisted suicide stuff or, or, or assisted dying, um, elevating sort of the human unit as paramount in a lot of ways on top of sort of the moral pyramid. Is that, how do you do that in, in your own work? Or do you think it's just a self-evident thing, nothing a self-evident philosophy? Well, not, you know, are you specifically referring to humans as opposed to other species or? Mm, I guess however or you just do it. consciousness I mean, you can do general. that yourself. Yeah. Uh, actually, well, you raised it when you did the, the Native American girl and then you swapped it with an animal in some ways you were. Yeah, so that was, it, not, yeah. now by the way, whether that prohibition is um, justifiable yeah. is it's uh, another rabbit hole that we can yeah. go down but, but but even the intuition or maybe even yeah. in your case a good rule of not taking her life yeah you must be invoking some cosmic value however you want to do it value to this this collection of quarks that's giving rise yeah. to this thing called a girl who yeah like how do you do that where do you find that so some uh, again putting postponing the issue of uh, how do you 
or, or whether you should differ, differentiate a mm-hmm. human from a, a, another sentient creature. In, in, in my book, Enlightenment Now, in the chapter on humanism, I tried to do this without the uh, pretense that it was a philosophically bulletproof argument. Mm. But I think there is, some, there is a, kind of, a kind of almost transcendental argument that you could make from or the very fact that you're in asking the question in the first place. You're kind of presupposing that, for well, one thing, that you exist. So it's kind of a Cartesian cogito uh, argument. If I'm engaged in discourse with you, whether life should be sacred or anything, there's got to be enough life for us to actually continue the, the, the discourse. We have to both exist. The, there, there's, I don't know if it's a logical flaw, but there is something perverse in the idea that it's an open question whether I get to complete the sentence or, or be shot. I mean, presumably, if we're having this conversation in the first place, we're presupposing that uh, we both get to be alive. Mm. Now, if you add to that the fact that we're not disembodied loci of pure thought, we're not angels, we're not uh, spirits, but we're actually incarnate, we're, we're embodied. We're, you know, we have, the reason we're having this conversation is because we have brains. Mm. And that there are certain conditions that are necessary for bodies to come into existence and stay in existence against the relentless undertow of, uh, of entropy and disease and degeneration. Well, that means that... Um, uh, it's uh, necessary that we have the conditions to stay alive, like um, having enough to eat, um, resisting uh, second law of thermodynamics by the infusion of, uh, of energy, uh, of uh, comfort and happiness, which we have reason to believe are um, indicators of physical integrity. What makes you happy and comfortable? Well, your, your body's likely to persist. What makes you uh, miserable and in pain? Well, there's some condition that's, that threatens your, your, your well-being, or even being, uh, having enough wherewithal to engage in this very rational discussion suggests that we're not so agonized, so hungry, so I- impaired that we can't um, function. So the, the, the common sense idea of health and happiness and uh, well-being and flourishing seemed to me to be a foundation of the very possibility of engaging in any kind of discourse about anything. And so there's a, a kind of backward valuation of the conditions that make discourse possible, uh, among them being all the things that we've evolved to uh, to seek and want, which are adaptations to keep ourselves alive. Now, th- those, of course, have themselves have boundary conditions, uh, such as the things that I seek to uh, maximize my physical integrity might come at the expense of someone else, and there, there has to be a symmetry of those interests. So it can't just be that what makes me better off is good, because what makes me better off might uh, impair your ability to exist or anyone else's, and there's no uh, logical priority to the pronoun I as opposed to you or he. I mean, we're all, if I'm sentient, I made of the same stuff as you, you're sentient. You have conditions for well-being as well, and an awful lot of morality just comes from impartiality, from saying that there's, I cannot defend anything that privileges my interests because I'm me and you're not, not as long as I'm in trying to defend them to you. Aside from the, an inherent value being placed on life, health, happiness, there is a requirement that any such principle be symmetrical, be impersonal, be impartial. Uh, again stemming from the very condition that we're having this conversation in the first place. Mm -hmm. One could say, well, what about the uh, 
then would morality stop in the case of the omnipotent, um, solitary, galactic overlord who doesn't need uh, anyone's cooperation, doesn't need to have the argument, doesn't need to persuade anyone of anything, uh, can simply, by brute force, subjugate the entire universe for his own uh, well-being. What, what would rule that out? And uh, you know, there, the first of all, the fact that no such creature could come into existence, because we know from the nature of evolution that evolution applies to populations, not to individuals. And so we're all inherently social. We're, we're members of a species. And the fact that uh, omnipotence cannot be guaranteed to last forever, and that uh, if an aspiring overlord seeks to maintain that position, he could be in a, uh, a vulnerable spot where he might have to persuade his attackers of what they uh, ought to do, such as you know, not, not torture him to death for fun, or not to simply eliminate him like a mindless menace. If there's a fire, we don't argue with the fire, we just extinguish it. If there's a rampaging wolverine, we don't persuade the wolverine that he shouldn't uh, attack people, we just kill it. Uh, for a person not to be in the position of being a mindless menace that is just neutralized as soon as others have the chance, he has got to have a kind of line of discourse open enough so that he could, if the time ever came, persuade them not to uh, simply liquidate him, eliminate him, exterminate him, but to treat him fairly, which means by standards that he has to be able to justify and share with others. Mm. I mean, one way of putting it, I borrowed from a former um, postdoc, Peter DeSholey, is that uh, if you're uh, facing an adversary by yourself, your best weapon may be an axe. But you're, if you're facing an adversary in front of a, a crowd of 50 people, your best weapon might be an argument. Right. Uh, so there is, when it comes to anything short of raw brute force, uh, there, uh, the, the, the safety in numbers comes from having a position that you can defend and expect others to adopt even if uh, they are not you. Yeah, I mean, that's, that seemed like an elaborate description of sort of a, a really good consequentialist framework, but I, I guess I'm interested in even going... Consequentialist, just, in, you know, in, yeah. in the limit, in the long run, safeguarded against gaming yeah. the system, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, yeah and will produce, we'll produce uh, flourishing by any sort of coherent definition of it. Uh, I guess I'm, uh, I'll just ask it even just like directly, back to the phys physician one, do you think there are are right and wrong answers, objectively right and wrong answers. Does that mean anything to you in the space of morality? Is there a right answer to this question yeah. of Oregon allows it, Massachusetts yeah. doesn't? Is one of these states right or wrong about the, the perfectly analogous case? Do, does, the, does those words mean anything to you in your framework? Yeah, they, yeah. They, they do, although they, uh, but you know, granted I have not solve the problem of the ages of the uh, ontological status of morality. No, but I think I yeah. am enough of a moral realist <laughs> yeah. uh, that it, um, by tests such as is the, if a particular policy is predicated on an empirical assumption, <clears throat> namely, if we had physician-assisted suicide, there'd be a slippery slope toward Auschwitz, mm -hmm. for example. Uh, and in fact, we see that physician-assisted assist suicide does not lead to that is not on that slippery slope. Mm -hmm. That slippery slope does not exist. Then it would be objectively true that that argument would fail. 
And, and you th- without the slope, without the evidence, is there a right or wrong answer just in in a vacuum? But if it, but if it's but if it, yeah, then, but if it came instead to a um, just a pure deontological yeah. principle, it's just it's just wrong to actively take steps to end a life. Could that be objectively right or wrong? I think it would depend on how well. Probably just as a bold statement, maybe not. But in terms of how it would be justified, then then perhaps yes. Yeah. And Such it, as that is it. If it was based on some other conviction, like you know, I I want to live, and I and uh, you know, and and you want to live, uh, and if I probe the boundary conditions of that, well, couldn't you imagine conditions in which you may not want to live? Shouldn't we? Mm. Uh, you know, then then, the deontological argument might fail, to the extent that it it itself is justified by a line of argument that can could then be uh, challenged. What I wanted to talk about on this one was, I think was it maybe the last episode we did or a recent one, um, you said something that I've been thinking about that, that was, I thought was really astute, that sort of consequentialism is gaining, uh, is more common now than deontological sort of arguments. Like if you scan the op-ed pages, it's, I, if I'm if I'm remembering that right, you were saying I think you were bringing up the case of slavery that it used to sort of be some sort of divine rule, mm-hmm. was how people were arguing it on both sides, mm-hmm. and these days we don't see as much as that. Of that, we see more sort of arguments of consequentialism sort of frameworks, yeah. which I think you were sort of celebrating. Yeah, yeah. Bro- just broadly, my point was that yeah. uh, in general, when you hear people make arguments, they're appealing to like humans rather than god mm. which was not the case even 150 years ago yeah for example on the slavery debate and that that like it, it's an obvious point but a, a profound one yeah at, at the same time yeah and he so this i also think that he, Stephen can play a bit of a peacemaker between our sort of virtue ethics versus deontology versus consequentialism he mm-hmm. his language is i think quite good about it which is sort of almost like deontological rules in service of consequentialist yeah. outcomes which no, is I, I think that's yeah. that's where i am because it's psychologically informed which is what steven actually is is yeah. classically trained in as a psychologist and knowing that um you know one of the lines we brought up before is tell the military tell people don't murder is a mm-hmm. good sort of deontological rule rather even though you might have to break it sometimes um is better than just like, you know, maximize flourishing as some sort yeah. of consequentialist rule. Right. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe that's sort of what we've been trying to say all along. And then maybe virtue ethics is just like a, a nothing statement that means that sentence in practice. Probably. I don't know. I don't, I, still I don't know, don't know what virtue ethics Me either. Is. I'm going to just use <laughs> Stephen's language from now on. <laughs> and so, um, back to the slippery slope argument again, he's saying sort of like the, the, your reasoning for, having a moral stance on something like physician assisted suicide if your argument is that it will lead to nazi germany um well then the evidence mm-hmm. is is really all that if you pull the plug from that one mm-hmm. then all you're left with is some sort of deontological argument of like mm-hmm. oh what's well, just it's just sacredly wrong to take a life mm-hmm. which is which is a which is maybe where the retreat is happening at this point i don't know I, the reason that i pressed him on all of that stuff uh, not only because he's he's a wonderful mind, but is to try to, um, yeah, like I said, build this from the ground up of like how do you even sanctify a life of a human at all? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Well, yeah, I think as I understand it, the point he was making there was if you have a chain of reasoning that t- 
taking a life is wrong because X, Y, or Z, then that chain of reasoning is vulnerable to, to objection. Like it's either yeah. true or, or not true based on what comes in the second clause. But if you just have a bald statement, life is sacred or, or a bald principle, like never take a life. Mm-hmm. It's hard to prove that right or wrong. Um, because there's no re- like justification behind it. I think that's the point he was making. I think so too. And I also, as I sort of forecast at the beginning, I like that he admits like he hasn't solved the foundational problem of morality that everybody's been struggling with for since the, the dawn of time. It, it actually, it reminds me of um, a, of a question that I've come to stumble upon as a really good probe as to whether you're having a conversation with somebody or not. You know, we live in a time politically that's just so annoying and so many conversations are masquerading as real conversations but are actually just weird pissing matches and no one wants to change their mind. And the question is something like, are there conditions or experiments, even hypothetical experiments that we could run Mm -hmm. that the results would lead you to change your mind about any topic? And to his credit, so like all three of us are sitting here being like, I, you know, what's the best argument against us? I can't see it. Mm-hmm. And if the best argument is a slippery slope one, we should all be, if we're actually engaged in a conversation, mm-hmm. open to the evidence of sure. like run an experiment. And yeah. if this does, it's hard to know, like, will this lead to Nazi Germany? <laughs> or but, if, if, yeah. if things go horribly wrong in Oregon where the law yeah. changed, then we'll be that like, would be a good reason to revise this view. Yeah. Yeah. Or just be more careful about it or we're making mistakes or doing something wrong. Um, I, I, I f- yeah, I find that question. I've been posing that question to some people where I start to suspect that I'm not actually engaged in the conversation. Yeah, that can be useful yeah. sometimes because you're asking them to uh, prove to you that their argument is, is falsifiable. Mm-hmm. Like that they're... Because if your argument isn't falsifiable, if there's no way the world could be different such that your argument would no longer hold true, then you're actually not making a claim about reality. Yeah. Right. How how do you contend with someone who has like a it just is wrong or it just is right? I don't need reasons and there's no experiment possible that could that could prove it wrong. Uh, how I mean, how do you contend with someone who takes a position like that? Uh, you don't have to because <laughs> they're not going to persuade people if they're just baldly asserting a fact with no with no rationale. Mm-hmm. If they're treating it like an axiom like like a bedrock principle that doesn't need further uh you know further proof then they're they're almost by definition not going to persuade people who don't already agree with them yeah because they're not giving any reasons to believe why they up uh, to believe their their position yeah you know? yeah because I, I mean i think and again that's why sort of i i had him take me to his first principles as we as we call them is even if someone does assert that you know i've i've on this show defended something as sort of an infinite value or a sacred value as a language thing um and i think it's useful maybe in the same way stephen pinker would would say it's a deontological sort of statement that has good consequences however you want to say that uh but the challenge is to try to do the work and me show my work of where i'm starting my entire moral framework to even make that statement mm-hmm. and at some point you are going to cheat so like in this next bit which we'll, we'll close out the interview with him we go to the is ought question um and he, he does say logically you can't get from is to ought mm-hmm. but you kind of have to and i think even a deontologist or someone 
like myself who wants to sort of not always be stuck as he says you could it's easy to game the system he keeps using that phrase gaming the system of mm-hmm. consequentialism and you've admitted that too it plays both sides of of the fence mm-hmm. um is is finding the place in your own morality where you start to build value of anything and find the place where you're cheating i've done it before knowing like i know my carl sagan line of we are the universe is a way to know for for it to know itself we are a way for the universe to know itself is how i get from ought to is it's a nice story it's nice you know but i know it's a cheat and I could point to it and say it's a cheat. And then I could just try to convince you that it's a nice, it's a nice way to start the world. It's a nice like mm-hmm. on button to start morality because, because you need it. And I admit you need one logically. I think everybody should. So even a deontologist, if, if you're really struggling with someone who's a deontologist who just says it just is, I don't, I, we should, I, I, I don't know. I'm not an advocate for giving up. I'm an advocate for trying to lead them down. Like let's break this down to the basic starting point. And you might find flaws you might find a free will uh, flaw that they have oftentimes you do at least with religious people that's why religious philosophy for me falls apart when you investigate it because they have to they're talking about a universe that we're not in um it's what you know most times it's a consciousness sort of flaw that that you find of a deontologist whose outcome seems to be totally um wrong no matter what that is i don't know does that make any sense I kind of I lost just said. you at the end. <laughs> I, don't, I, I guess I wish I had like a concrete example of it, but um, well, I mean, he, he pulled in like the Descartes sort of, I think therefore I am, uh-huh. um, which is, which is as good as you can get from a bootstrap of just, mm-hmm. he says like existence itself is self-evident. That's the nature of existence. And because we exist, then we're in this tacit agreement that there's value to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he Pinker is good at seeing what follows from from behaviors that are sort of basic like speech. Right. So like one of his arguments for free speech, which is a basically a deontological or rule consequentialist um, rule is, you know, if you're speaking, if you're if you're showing up to a debate about free speech to argue against it, you've already presupposed your right to speak. So there's something, and he, he was careful not to say a logical contradiction, but there is something, as he put it, perverse mm-hmm. about presupposing one's right to speak and then arguing against, in general, the right to speak. Right. Um, and perhaps there are exceptions, of course. But, yeah, and he kind of made the same move there with you know, the right to, or you know, the fact that we exist the principle of impartiality that you know i my existence is not magically more important than yours or his or hers which is still not evident to everyone right on earth <laughs> yeah unfortunately. well um, but yeah he, he's he's he has a, he has an amazing way of uh grounding moral philosophy in kind of common sense yeah. never making the issue more complicated than it need be while also not claiming to have all the answers, but not letting the fact that we don't have, have all the answers prevent us from, you know, like uh, lead us to lapse into nihilism. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, like he said, his, I mean, enlightenment now is a amazing book. If, 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 if no one, if you haven't read it yet, you should. 
but his chapter on humanism, like he said to me there, he's like, he's not, he, he puts it forward knowing it's not bulletproof and he'll admit it's not bulletproof, but that's the thing. I think admitting, um, where your cheat is logically as a moral philosopher and, and defending it with as much poetry and art and artistry as, as you can is, is important work, underlooked work, but you have to start somewhere. And if you start with humanism, like he does in that chapter, then, then you can, you can go into some pretty great places. And luckily, as, as we all know, it, there's a ton of overlap, you know, most people, like you said, want to live. And yeah, so they you, want to live longer and they yeah. want to be healthier. Yeah. Um, so you start with those basic right. things and then you can, the then data, can the data about, should matter. Yeah. Right. Then we can argue about the edge cases about not edge cases, but about the other values, spirituality and yeah, you know, but like there are these bedrock things that sort of people everywhere behave as if they want because they do in fact want them. Yeah. And, you know, we, we understand enough about human flourishing to make claims about good and evil and not worry that there's no such thing. And we should always be mindful of the ways in which we could be confused about that. But like in general, we want people to live longer and healthier and have more opportunities and more autonomy. And you know, that that's enough to ground a general picture of, of, moral realism i think yeah all right i'm gonna let it play out to the end here so we do do the is ought thing um and we we bring it back of course to the 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 topic at at hand and and um see see where we get with that one so here we go and in our even i guess without even physician assisted suicide maybe maybe a tricky one are there just right and wrong directions to move in the space that are that are objectively that that exists somewhere uh, objectively i'm trying to think of examples that don't lend themselves to easy empirical sort of interrogation i mean you know is abortion wrong yeah go with abortion and then and then what would the what would the conditions be for you what information would we we need to know about this i guess if we're talking about the end of life yeah talking about abortion probably makes a lot of sense here in that right well there there too so even even the abortion debate used to be a slippery slope argument if we ever legalized abortion then before you know it we'd have legal infanticide and again there we actually the facts are in uh, that that does not happen countries that allow that allow abortion don't allow infanticide uh, probably without exception as far as i know uh, however that it's just inherently wrong well then let me try this out even if uh, some deontological pr- principle can't be shown to be necessarily objectively incorrect it could be shown to be inconsistent with beliefs that the advocate uh, otherwise holds and so there is uh, room to show that certain moral beliefs are untenable if they lead to a contradiction so in the case of uh, abortion for example if it's you know, you know life begins at conception and um, all killings must be punished you say well would you uh, put a w- woman in jail for using an uh, intrauterine device that prevents con- prevents implantation of a, of a conceptus they say well no I wouldn't do that and you say well how come and you, if you show that there no principled line can be drawn and they stick to their guns and say well no of course you shouldn't put a, a woman in jail for using an IUD then you could expose that contradiction I mean now of course it's, it's a little risky then you could have you know Kevin Williamson who notoriously a couple of years ago suggested that, that a woman should be hanged for having an abortion yeah uh, 
so I mean, you got to give, give them credit for consistency. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, the they, fact they that, bite the bullet. Yeah, but yeah, but, yeah. but the fact that most people reco- recoiled from that yeah. suggests that there is an opening for showing that their beliefs prohibiting abortion across the board are at least logically in, uh, uh, incoherent. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I guess like we, I, I'm struggling to think of the non-empirical cases. I, I'm thinking of sort of cultural relativism cases where we have a strong, where there's where there's masses of people. Maybe the empirical question is different. Let's we'll go with the Taliban. Does the Taliban on a narrow question of uh, treating uh, if if girls should be able to go to school, and they say yeah. no, and we say yes here in the West. Is one of us objectively right about that, regardless of, yeah. or would you, or would, do you think the only way to evaluate it is sort of empirical outcomes th- about flourishing and the women in that country? And the, like, is that the only way to probe this, or, or are there right and wrong answers without ever invoking God, or yeah. do we have to invoke God? To get yeah, the right no, I don't. I mean, invoking God gets you nowhere. I agree. Because so, so, how, so how do we do who's it? Who's to say what God says? Oh, yeah. And Plato, going back to the mm-hmm. if he does say it why and if he has a reason let's just appeal to that reason and if not why should we take it seriously Uh, so maybe so in the case of the uh, the easy case is do you have a right to uh, keep a girl out of school in this country or to cut off her genitals now you could say well we've got a social contract that you implicitly agree to by uh, coming to this country Uh, moreover we have a principle of autonomy uh, that uh, circumscribes what families can do with their uh, their children. There are cases where uh, everyone is a uh, under the protection of the same laws, and that may not be abrogated by a claim of parental ownership, uh, as we do in this when it comes to say withholding life-saving uh, medicine from a, a terminally ill child mm. or a, 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 a child threatened with an otherwise fatal disease. So, what about well? okay, you can't uh, cut off your daughter's genitals in this country, but if it's in Afghanistan, then who are we to say? Uh, or if they keep their girls out of school. Now, again, we have to differentiate the question of, well, does that give us the right to invade them to... Different question. Which, is, which we agree is a different question. Yeah. But if they, were, if, we're, if they were willing to sit down with us and listen to arguments, would we have arguments uh, against it? Now, we both agree there, could, there were clear consequentialist arguments, namely everyone's better off if girls get educated. Could there be uh, kind of uh, more principled arguments? Well, you know, one would be, um, yeah, I mean, this going back to the uh, impartiality, impersonality, that there is a logical problem in any moral argument that says it's okay for me, it's not okay for you. Uh, and at which point you could say, well, what's the difference? Uh, me and you switch reference every time we take turns in conversation. Uh, if you're claiming anything for yourself just because you're you, we are no longer engaged in conversation, and I can just force you to do anything. You're, you're now a wolverine. You're, you're a fire. You're a hurricane. You're a, vi- you're, you're a bacillus. Uh, we're no longer reasoning about what we both ought to respect. Uh, as soon as you say, uh, I'm doing it because it, it, it's me. And you can say, well, what about um, uh, men making decisions for women? Uh, if you were a, what if you were a woman? Would you agree to this? A woman would say, well, no. I, you know, if Malala says, I, I do want to get an education, how can you justify her not getting it and you getting it? Uh, and so you m- might be able to pursue the argument yeah. along for impersonality or impartiality uh, in that direction. Even if they were, let alone in some fantasy world if they were the only people on earth without countries without cultures anything it's just the you know the first caveman on earth and he decides i don't want my daughter to get an education 
is that somewhere where we could say this is just objectively wrong? You're wrong. You know, yes. You know, it, yeah, it, I think probably good again with the, the usual proviso that not uh, a not being a professional moral philosopher and b not having the um, time to work out the argument, hear counter arguments, yeah. refine it, complicate it. Uh, so, uh, which is what one would have to do to properly answer yeah. these, but you know, within those constraints, it seems to me you could probably that so primal caveman, you could say, well, why, uh, why you and not her? Yeah, and if you just say, well, I, I like getting educated, and to hell with her, well, you could say, well, then we're, our, our conversation is over, and um, I, I'm going to put duct tape over your mouth and send Malala to school. Yeah. <laughs> that, that'll get you there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. If, I don't know if there's much more to, to poke at. I, you know, I was, yeah. I'm really with everyone that I've had on. I'm, I'm trying to dig into sort of the is ought, yeah, famous yeah. distinction, and and it's you know that's that's a philosophical puzzle that Sean Carroll like nearly strangled me when I refused. You know, not really. He, yeah, just, right. he just wanted to give me therapy that like you can't get the ought from the is. Well, I mean, yeah, as a strictly logical matter, you mm. can't going back to. Um, uh, G.E. Moore and before mm. him David Hume. On the other hand, uh, once you're committed to some uh, oughts, like I ought not to be killed, for example, maybe, or, or I ought to live, uh, you know, I ought to be able to finish the sentence without being, uh, without being shot. And, you know, maybe you can't justify that, but uh, it's hard to imagine anything without that. And once you have that, do other things follow? Uh, even if that core ought, that core desire cannot be justified. But from the bare minimum of you exist, you think, uh, you're trying to persuade me another thinker. Maybe that those can't be justified, but given that we have no choice about those, uh, we've accepted them, we're here. Yeah. What follows from that? that? That, I suspect, again, being wary of uh, you know what a uh, uh, you know a, a good knife wielding philosopher might do in response if I don't have the time to f mm. work it out, seems to me that you could get a lot of the way um, uh, toward that yeah. uh, toward a, toward a deriving a a lot of oughts, if not from an is but from that very very minimal ought. Yeah, I, I I I try to build the bridge as much as I can. I know it's an illegal move every time I do it, but I think once you do it at some point you have to pull yourself up from your bootstraps or else nothing follows and then and then a whole lot of I mean, maybe a bit of a cartesian argument in yeah. the same way that you know co uh, I, I think therefore i am uh, and uh, you know that itself i know has been logically challenged uh, and it may be there may be a uh, you know, a special category of of, of rock bottom bedrock uh, arguments that are are uh, maybe our logic can't Justify them with something else, precisely because you got to start with something, okay, so something, and that something might be, you know, rationality and existence. Yeah. Where existence, uh, and here this might be a little bit more tendentious. That existence, from the point of view of someone like me who thinks about how thinking entities come into existence, which is to say by natural selection uh, of brains, that even the raw transcendental bedrock existence plus rationality, I would say, well, what in the real physical universe allows existence and rationality to come into existence? You know, things like food. <laughs> and therefore, if you are willing to acknowledge existence and rationality, do you also have to acknowledge things like food and sex and, and air and temperature and uh, health and so on? Hmm. 
Yeah, I think that gets you pretty far. So it, it seems like the the bottom of the bedrock in this particular dilemma to wrap it up, but with just the 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 one that we started with is this appeal to autonomy and that and the autonomy of of the individual, um, which I guess with, we, yeah we could which is not bit, can, is not exceptional because we you know right. we put people in jail, sure uh, you know we do and. But uh, but it would certainly be the uh, default. All else being equal. All else being equal. Yeah, yeah and it, you could complicate those variables of if there's children involved, you don't want the death, or I mean, spouses, and you, you could complicate the the person requesting the assisted dying, where it's not a completely autonomous and a vacuum decision. I'm sure to a point where maybe we would hesitate. But yeah, there. Yeah. I mean, I think there, there would be uh, yeah, there'd be legitimate grounds for 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 weighing different interests but probably not those grounds I think autonomy would trump uh, yeah. uh, the, the, the other people's interests in you having a continuing to exist in misery and pain yeah so I, as far as I know from at, at the moment three states it's somewhat it's legal in Oregon is our most sort of liberal law with it as far as I understand Montana it's a little fuzzy and, and I was just reading New Jersey may pass a if you're if you're declared if you have six month or less prognosis or mm-hmm. diagnosis to, to live um, that that you can request that that's being talked about now. So I don't know if it's I don't know where the needle's moving of it. In, in well, the and then we have to look to other countries. Uh, yeah, Ontario, yeah. I believe, has. Okay. Uh, in fact, I know the mother of a friend of mine who mm. um, whose wish was respected. To mm. and you know, and I would say to uh, just to make it not uh, uh, not not hypocritical. I could absolutely imagine circumstances where I would want uh, a physician medical assistance in dying. Yeah. I mean, yeah. As one anecdote, my, my father died three years ago and was diagnosed with lung cancer and given a year. Um, and it, he would have been in, and I think this is empirically to, to point to that again of how this works out, he would have been in the vast majority who would have had the pills and never taken them. Mm-hmm. And it would have vastly improved his last year on earth because he spent the whole year just sort of afraid of what it, of, of oh, losing control. Just knowing that, just he, knowing had that he had a, he he had a trap door it? if he needed it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he would have, he wouldn't have. The way, the way his death worked out, it would have been fine it was a pretty quick ending in the end and a little little you know discomfort in the very end but um his mental yeah. health and his stress would have been drastically reduced oh. and allowed him to, oh, to connect yeah. with his family in a better way in his final year and i think i mean it's again this one's hard for me to conjure a counter argument because you only have to see it once to realize like this is this, this is pretty needed i don't know i don't want this this show's not meant to be political at all but it's yeah. like this one feels like to me like an obvious answer so it's so I'm, yeah, yeah. Well, i'll keep challenging myself to come up with better arguments against it but this but yeah, one's tough yeah. for me <laughs> yeah me too yeah anyway thanks man okay great. thank you awesome. um I I share I share your insight that it's hard to see it once in action and not support it. Yeah. Which I can verify in the case of my mother, who essentially had physician assisted suicide. Oh, did she? Yeah. Uh, although it's it's not technically legal. This is another indication that it, another indication that that it's the ethical thing to do to allow it is that almost every doctor in the relevant position will tell you that they do it in private at least even if it's technically illegal yeah because it's so the pull to do it when someone is in so much pain and you know they're going to die in the next two three weeks say and it's just going to be agony until the end and then the end in the face of that it's very difficult for a person even and especially when your family member to to say this this shouldn't be allowed yeah yeah, I was um, I was trying to look up the number here, but I was 
if I last time I looked it up, it was something like in Oregon, which, you know, I guess is famously our first really like big natural pilot experiment of this thing. Um, something like 80% of the people who have the pills that they can take whenever they want, never take them. But the peace of mind that is, this was the example I was, I'm still pretty sure would have been good for my father. And just knowing the kind of guy he is and the way the death finished, he wouldn't have taken them because it just was never really needed. But the peace of mind, knowing that if he needed to, he had that sort of trap door would have made that final year so much better for him. The anxiety, the fear he had about losing his mind and his faculties. And like Stephen points out, most people aren't afraid of the pain. They're afraid of like, losing their autonomy over their body and their selves and being a burden and all that kind of stuff. Um, my dad was full of those kind of fears and just knowing if he would have been in, you know, anxious with that kind of thing. And we could have said like, Hey, you know, if that happens, you have the pills, if you need it would have made him feel better and he could have enjoyed the day and a little peace of mind and he never would have taken them. Mm. So it's like, and it, I was actually just looking it up. I think, um, I recorded this with Steven a few, I think before New Jersey officially, um, uh, past that I think they have now it's in litigation here but I think in if this is right it's California Colorado DC Hawaii Maine New Jersey Oregon Vermont and Washington all have physician assisted dying statutes at this point oh, wow. I think it's actually like a quiet wave that's happening here that's um, amazing yeah so I I don't know and in Montana apparently it's legal as well so yeah it's uh, apparently one in five americans live in a place where there's an option for it at this point mm-hmm. and new jersey is maybe the newest i don't know they just signed it in march be interesting to find out you know to study whether the states that get rid of the death penalty <laughs> are the likeliest to institute physician assisted suicide yeah like if the order of states getting rid of death penalty and getting physician of suicide physician assisted suicide are the same yeah or like heavily correlated i guess we should also get used to like says about the culture of those states yeah one thing that was nice like right off the bat in this episode Stephen like corrected the terminology to medically assisted dying right rather than this word suicide just yeah, like no, get I that think, off the I table that, and yeah yeah i think that's it's that old makes and, way more sense yeah 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 in fact in this thing that i'm looking at now it says incorrect and, and inaccurate terms are assisted do- suicide, doctor-assisted suicide, physician-assisted suicide, and active euthanasia, which feels like a really political one. Yeah. And the correct ones, at least that they're advocating for, are physician-assisted deaths, physician-assisted dying, physician-hastened death or dying, yeah. aid in dying, physician aid in dying, medical aid in dying, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting with these, you, you always want to avoid the charge that you're using a euphemism. Mm. Um, and that your euphemism is for political ends. However, there are there has to be some non-political criteria for what is a more or less accurate term for something, right? There has to be yeah. a way to stand away from like the political argument and be like, actually, what's going on here? What's the what's the best word we have to describe this? Yeah, and that's a it's it's an interesting you know, it's a question I think about a lot. Uh, because the the battle for the language of, of what you call something does a lot in terms of branding and helping you win a debate. Yeah. Uh, but you know you're you're always open to the charge that you're not being honest with the language you're using. You're trying to paper over some atrocity by calling torture like uh, what do they call it? Enhanced interrogation. <laughs> right. So like, is that? How, how do we know whether something is euphemism, dysphemism, or just sort of an honest description of, of what's going on? Yeah. 
yeah, this is really, I guess, where like the political thinkers should take the wheel. And I mean, if, if we decide as philosophers in the room that this is the direction things ought to go, we can't really find the philosophical reason to argue against it. We can play around with the test cases as much as we can. Things like an alcoholic are interesting. But if we decide like for th this is really a direction we ought to be moving in, it's almost like the philosophy is done. Let's hand off that recommendation to the politicians and then let them who, who really ought to be experts in psychology win the fight because the consequences are, are worth it. Mm. Um, I mean, I could see this going, I could see as this death with dignity or whatever we're going to call it sort of wave continues. I could see the challenges against it getting ugly and maybe horror stories because I'm sure it has happened and I'm sure it will happen where there'll be edge cases where it goes wrong. Someone's ref like yelling against it. Right. Someone regrets it. I don't know. And the I mean, one story will be picked it. up on as a reason to get rid of all the laws. Yeah. And though, if there's a photo of it, that'll be like, you know, paraded around. Like we see at abortion yeah. conversations now where it's just appeal to an emotional sort of like, look how horrible this is. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's like the, I don't know, the delicate work of, yeah. of politicians really. But I don't know in, in general, you know, I'm an advocate of that philosophy needs to be much more in the room in conver in just about every conversation. But this is one where I don't know. I, I, it's hard I for me to find the philosophy. I feel like it's done. So I'm glad that it's, that it's on the way. I might be wrong. I, I, we're all struggling here to come up with reasons why, why this would be if the slippery slope argument just doesn't pan out, which is the best we're sort of coming up with, mm -hmm. we have to just call it like, no, sorry, your slippery slope argument, I'm open to it. Show me the evidence. It's just not true. And the abortion leads to infanticide argument. Like you said, like whether you believed that a hundred years ago or not, that's not turning out to be true either. Some slopes just aren't slippery. And I don't know. I think as Christianity declines, uh, which I, well, I, I believe it still is, but, yeah, I don't know. Uh, that's a I, yeah. someone. I'm sure someone in the audience knows more about that. But you know, as, as secularism becomes more popular, and people no longer have reasons to view li life as sacred in the sense that would preclude medically assisted dying, um, it's just going to become obvious to people watching their grandparents and mm -hmm. parents die. You know, and even in religious families, it's going to be obvious that that we need a solution to the problem of end of life, needless trauma. Yeah. And I think that will become obvious in, in people's personal lives. And that that really all we have to do is clear the field of bad reasons to oppose it. And the good reasons to support it will be self-evident from experience yeah. for people over a certain age. Yeah. If you just start, this always goes back to your um, uh, favorite fallacy of the continuum fallacy. Mm -hmm. And if you just start with like the easiest case of like some 99 year old grandmother with an awful painful illness who just kind of wants it to end and their family's there and that's on like one side of the spectrum and the other side is like 
a five-year-old who like loses its his favorite toy and says i want to kill myself <laughs> like obviously there's there's a, a yes on the one side and a no on the other side from any moral philosophical framework do the work don't just say it's self-evident and do okay that one's really easy the five-year-old hasn't formed the kind of maturity that we trust their autonomy and they can't predict their future states very well and they're going to get over this toy whether they don't know it right now or not so i'm going to i'm going to override the principle of autonomy as a five-year-old with all these other kinds of principles that you know do the work that's the thing about philosophies it's you can't just laugh off the ridiculous examples you got to do the work and the 99 year old you can do that same kind of work and be like you know this is they do have their autonomy they're in their right mind blah 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 show your work do your work even if it feels like a dumb question and now do the hard work of moving along on the gradient in either direction and you'll find the line but the truth is if we're dealing with the again in this episode we talked a lot about weird cases that might be near that that line like an alcoholic which interesting it's an interesting case in in holland but most of the cases are like the grandmother on the easy side of that gradient Mm -hmm. so this issue in particular is one again we both have seen a, a close family member die it's one that again you see it once and this becomes a slam dunk issue um i'm glad to see you know looking it up during this recording and seeing that it, it this seems like a quiet kind of advancement of of actually moral progress regardless of all the other shit the world is dealing with maybe like this there's some good news of the expanding moral arc even just here uh in this country um is good news to me like this is nothing but good news to me and i and i don't worry that we won't you know, find our footing before we're putting Johnny who lost his toy truck to death because he's a little upset. We'll find it. We'll argue about that line. We'll find it. But this like just has to start. We have to start drawing, drawing that line. Yeah. I don't know. Agreed. There's my plea. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. (laughs) So I got two more episodes really to, to decide still that David Deutsch one that I keep <laughs> hinting at. I might just, I'll just do it as the finale probably. Cause it's so big and I need you to be like, I mean, this whole thing is a long con. There is no David Deutsch. Episode. David Deutsch does not <laughs> exist. Um, but the one, the one we'll do next week, I think is the self-driving cars one with, okay. with Matthew B Crawford, who I yes. absolutely adore. So yeah, so two more in this first season and, uh, and yeah, um, listen to Coleman's, solo podcast who are some of your guests sam and oh yeah my first guest is sam harris yeah or was now at this point i'm gonna release this after yeah trust it was great Um, yeah i'll have i have a couple other cool guests coming up john mcwarder Catherine frankie um jamil giovanni thomas chatterton williams um well that sounds fun are you having fun with that yeah 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 I'm, i'm glad for it to be out yeah finally I, I recorded a lot of these first episodes many months ago so. yeah and they're just wide-ranging conversations about whatever yeah. topics on your mind or yeah. the guest mind that's fun cool all right guys all right. see you next time